Hello. Hello. Welcome to Salem the Podcast. We are your hosts and favorite Salem tour guides. My name is Jeffrey Lilly. And I am Sarah Black. And today we're going to talk about murder. There's been a murder in Salem. A few years ago. Uh, quite a few years ago. <laughs> like several. Centuries. Almost 200 years ago. Almost 200. Almost yeah. 200 years ago. So it's, been, it's been, what, 192. 192 years ago. There was a murder on Essex Street. So do we get, like, bonus points for doing our first, like, true crime episode or what? I'll give us, can we give ourselves bonus points? I, I think we should. Gold stars. Red stars. Blood. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're looking at me like, why do I get a red star? Because there's blood. There's blood everywhere. Blood. Um, but hold on. We got, we got stuff to talk about first. Yeah. Speaking of blood, this is going to get a little graphic at points. So just a heads up. Uh, if you have young ears around, just be discreet. We're going to be covering some gruesome details of this murder, as well as topics of suicide and human trafficking. Content warning. But first, a special shout out to the Ordinary Extraordinary podcast. They actually had us on to talk about some Salem cemeteries. So thank you so much to them. That was a lot of fun. And like, uh, thank you, obviously. But it was like we get the email. We're like, what? That's so ah. cool. And uh, it was like we timed it a little right. But uh, we had our cemeteries coming up uh, in the feed. So we knew that. And they're like, oh, this is something we want to talk about. And we're like, this is perfect timing. Uh, so that's pretty cool. So if you enjoyed our cemetery episodes, go check out their episode with us about more on Salem cemeteries. And then if you want more dead people, they cover cemeteries literally from all over the world. Mm -hmm. So they also do a couple other fun history topics like the Great Salem Fire of 1914. So we did get quite a bit of positive feedback on that episode. If you are still interested and want to learn more, go check them out. So I've got another special shout out. We have been getting an influx of emails. Um, big thank you to all of our listeners. We've been getting a bunch of Salem stories, so very excited to start working those in. But one email in particular stuck out. Ready for it? Do, is there like... Do, it, Hold on, hold on. Is there a drum roll button? Is there? There's not. Can we? We'll, okay, we'll pull up, put that on like the rim list of shot. things. Do the rim shot. Do the rim shot. Okay. Try it. No. No. Drum roll, please. Very nice. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Greetings. Thank you very much for submitting a memorial to find a grave. You indicated that the memorial for Elias Derby should be considered for inclusion in the, quote, famous listings. We reviewed your submission and we agree. You can now find Elias Derby in the famous section. Alternatively, you can go directly to the memorial by following the link below. Thanks again. Find a grave. Who, uh, who submitted that? So this is a message forwarded to us by Kurt Dion. And I think I mentioned him in an earlier episode. He considers himself a grave hunter. Yeah, he's, he's your friend who he did all the, the um, presidents. Yes, yes. Yeah. We met in grad school. He goes around to different states all over the country and visits famous graves. And he was absolutely appalled to hear how hard it was for us to find Elias Haskett Derby's grave. Um, so if you guys recall back to the cemetery episode, his tomb is right in Charter Street Cemetery, but we had no idea. Mm -hmm. 
So Kurt took it upon himself to put together a find a grave listing and then reached out to find a grave and requested it be included in the famous section and they granted it. Which is pretty cool. And for those of you who don't know what find a grave is, it, it's a website where you find a grave. <laughs> so if you're curious about someone who you knew, someone famous, someone in your town, uh, uh, check that out. And um, it's also... Uh, it's kind of like Wikipedia where you can author different pages. So if you know, you can go put in your family members. You can walk around your local uh, cemetery or bearing point and take the picture of the headstone and uh, geolocate it to that location and then help other people out. If that's something that you uh, want to do on a Saturday afternoon. Hey, you know, I, I, it's I know, a great hobby. I know people who do it. So, so cool. So thank you. We're making history. One other quick thing we wanted to address. Uh, we got an email from a, concerned listener and uh, i just wanted to voice their concern and a response to that so i'm just going to read the message hello i just started listening to your podcast i just wanted to express a concern i have y'all keep saying paganism and witches as though being pagan means you are a witch all pagans are not witches and all witches are not pagans please don't use the term terms as synonyms thank you so first off thank you uh we Genuinely appreciate uh, any sort of critique or correction. I've had to do that a couple of times, and that not only helps us, but anyone else listening. We don't want to pass on bad information, bad history, or incorrect terms. So, to address that, if I have been doing that, uh, I'm sorry for it's come across as I've been doing that. I am sorry, but what I've what I mean when I say that are two different things, like this and that, uh, being pagan and or. Uh, Wiccan. So it's not, they're the same thing. They're two things that sometimes I address together at the same time. Um, however, if in the future, I will uh, attempt to address them uh, more separately if we talk about them together. So again, big apologies for that. Uh, if I recall correctly, I think Angelica from Odd Meter actually corrected me on this. I had misidentified both of them as witches. Um, okay. but one of them, both of them identify as pagan and one identifies as a witch. So we definitely want to make sure that we're making those distinctions. And if anything, I'm really looking forward to sitting down with some local witches in town and we can really dig into this topic more. That's uh, that's on the, on the list for season two. I put that in like air quotes, just like next year. <laughs> If we're still around. Whoa, whoa, I'm just whoa, kidding. Whoa. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Whoa, I'm going to turn your microphone off. I'm kidding. We'll be here. If you keep listening. We also got a, another critique about us talking a little too fast as well. So I love the feedback. I appreciate that people feel comfortable enough with us to chat about these, um, about their grievances or their suggestions. We appreciate it. And we appreciate you. So uh, thanks. And we will definitely try to do better. Thanks for listening. See you later. No, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> We're not quite done. Now, though, we have tour time. Did you ever watch Jersey Shore? No. Oh. Well, in it, one of the guys, whenever it's time to get ready to go out to the bars, he's like, it's T-shirt time. And then everyone starts saying, it's T-shirt time. It's this huge thing. And recently... 
that is what has been in my head when I think about tour time. I mean, you could be like, oh, it's tour time. It's tour but, but, time. But, 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 but like ghostly, like it's haunted. Ooh, yeah. Let's, yeah. Let's just do that. Tour time. Ooh. It's tour time. So tell me about your tours. My tours. I, I had some fun tours. Uh, good people, as usual. Uh, had some listeners. Had I got shouted at in a good way on the street uh, <laughs> by a listener. Uh, so the, the gentleman, and I hope you're listening, uh, sort of, sort of like did a wave and I like sort of wave back. Um, and I, I didn't recognize them, but like, Hey, you know, you know, people, you wave, yeah, you wave yeah. back. And he's like, Jeff, sit on the podcast. And I was like, Oh, cool. I was like, I, and I'm like, in it. front of your listeners yeah, yeah, or in front of your tour people. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, uh, check out sit on the podcast. And shoot, I can't remember like exactly what he said. He's like, but if you, uh, if you're not listening to sit on the podcast, you're a bunch of chumps. <laughs> <laughs> and he like kept walking. Oh, that's great. Thank you. <laughs> right. And I was like, that was awesome. That, that like made my day, but I had some other listeners on my tour and, uh, I know I, uh, told you that I had something cool to tell you. Yeah. So just to preface this, <laughs> we had gone, we were on Opus's patio and Jeffrey's like, Oh, I have something to tell you. I really want to tell you. I want to tell you, but I can't, I can't, I got to save it for this. Yeah. So it's I like, t- okay, so lay it on me. I need it. <laughs> so. Uh, this, uh, couple comes up and we're talking, oh, hey, where are you from? Um, and her accent is distinct. She's from South Africa. Oh. And a lot of times people confuse Australian, New Zealand, Scottish, well, South African, right? But if you know someone who's from South Africa and you've heard that it is, it is very distinct. And I do, um, Friend of mine in Key West, a uh, friend of mine, she used to be my babysitter. Uh, <laughs> Are you guys friends now? Like I could go down and say hi, you know, I could call her up, you know, but you know, you know, five, eight years difference when yeah. you're, you know, 14 and 20 and right, then, right, you know, right. then you can get drinks. So, uh, but she still lives down there, Lizette, uh, but she's from South Africa. So I was well versed with the accent. So I hear this woman, I was like, Oh, cool. And then, and then he sort of interjects like, well, you know, she's from, but we, we don't actually live in South Africa. And I was like, where do you live? Where do they live? Mauritius. Oh, I thought you were going to say Michigan. No, 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 no. Mauritius. Mauritius. Yeah. Where's Mauritius? See, you're doing the same thing I did. I didn't know where Mauritius was. I don't even know what Mauritius is. What is it? It's an Island. Ooh, that's cool. Yeah. So I was like Mauritius. I was like, I'm not familiar. And he's like, oh, well, you know, South Africa. I was like, yeah, yeah. He's like, you know, Madagascar. I was like, yeah, yeah. He's like, it's to the west of that. And I was like, do you mean the Isle of France? And he's like, oh, yeah, that's what it used to be called. Oh, where Derby had all of his. That's so cool. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that's where Derby Jr. went in the Grand Turk. So he leaves Salem and we're standing by Derby Square. And I'm like. It's like he left where we're standing and went to where you guys came, came from. from. Yeah. That is so cool. Yeah. <laughs> and not just Der- Derby Jr. Like the Isle of France was a huge, yeah. huge yeah. headquarters for them over in that area. Oh my gosh. That's so neat. So did you tell them? Yeah. So I told them all about Derby, all about Derby Jr., all about the Grand Turk, which wasn't like part of the tour, but I'm like, I just have to tell you, like, you have no idea that you have this huge connection where you live and where you're visiting to Salem. That's so yeah. cool. And they were into it. Yeah. They were like, Oh my gosh, I know that. What was his name? He's like, I'm going to look him up. And I was like, you can find pictures of like, uh, the, the poor and like when he gets down there. And then I told him how he, he gained weight and he <laughs> <was> like, <laughs> like he needed, he needed to write back home. And I was like, and then they're like, 
telling them all about how the the product was brought through the port and then sent back to England. He's writing his dad and like, how did how did they even know? And I was like, well, if he's if he's going farther west, then he'll send his letters with a boat that's going uh, back around uh, South Africa. And they're like, oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. That's so cool. Yeah. So I had someone that I discovered recently was a neighbor of mine. And she told me where she lives. And I said, oh, my God, you live right next to Elias Haskett Derby's birthplace. Oh, she lives. She lives like right next to it. And I I did not get the same (laughs) excitement or reaction. (laughs) She was just like, who, what? <laughs> but it, it, like that from is like, so like, cool. Like 5,000 miles away. And I'm like someone in history, you know, I was like, literally, it's the first ship. It, it goes down there. It's still known today. We have like these letters, these records. You're standing like by Derby Square. It's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. So they're from the island of Mauritius, previously known as the Isle of France. The world is so much smaller yeah. than I think people understand it to be. I had to hold on to that for days. I wanted to tell you this so badly. We can meet people from all over the world. So the connections, you know, I think so many people forget Salem was this international port. There's probably Salem pepper remnants all over. Yeah. Yeah. The the ghosts of them floating around. (laughs) (laughs) So I had a pretty cool tour as well. I think you and I have talked briefly before about how It'd be really fun to have a celebrity on tour. Yeah. Have you ever had anyone? Yes. Not 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 like a big celebrity, but like. Right. Like someone, do they have an IMDB page? No. Well, this person did. So I had this group of ladies. They showed up. One was actually holding a skull, believe like, it or not. Like a real one? Uh, like a, I'm assuming a deer skull. Oh, oh, okay. My first thought was. They must have gotten it at Hyven Forge. Right. I mean, there's plenty of places in town you can pick that stuff oh, up. Oh, yeah. Come to find out, one of them had dared the other to carry the skull around for the entirety of the tour. <laughs> I'm assuming they probably thought I would find it funny or just plain odd. But but it's Salem. But this is Salem, and it's kind of normal. Yeah. You look, you're like, oh, where'd you get that? <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> Discount? Hey. Yeah. <laughs> um, we were just carrying a skull around the other day. Literally. <laughs> it, dude just whips it out of his backpack. And then the girl, can I, can I just, sorry, can we just, can we talk about that real quick? Yeah, go ahead. So if you've seen the promo pictures with, with, with Dr. Vitka, he has this skull and we took some cute pictures and it was fun. Some guests on his tour comes up. It's and, a real skull. Yeah. And he's like, oh, can you hold this real quick? And I don't know what she was like. She was a teenager. Yeah. Without batting an eye. Just grabs it. Just grabs it <laughs> and is just holding on to the skull. Doesn't even like look at it or ask if it's personally, I'm not, I know you guys like your skulls. It's still weird for me to hold a human skull. She, like without, she didn't even skip a beat. This girl just like held, I was like, she probably didn't think it was real. You don't come across real I, human skulls very often. I guess I don't know. But anyway. But anyway. So one of these ladies turned out to be Valerie Curry. And I didn't know the name at first. I'll be honest. I'm not much of a TV watcher, but you may know her from The Tick or Peacock's The Lost Symbol. Oh. Yeah. And um, she's also in the newest Blair Witch, which I just recently watched, and she dies a horrid death. Like like the 2016 one. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty good. Have you seen it? No. 
she dies very similar to how Vecna kills. Spoilers. Sorry. Spoilers. Sorry. Spoilers. And yeah, her limbs just went. Okay. Okay. But anywho, uh, super cool. But all of that aside, the thing that I was most excited about was the fact that she was a supporting vampire in Breaking Dawn Part 2. <laughs> you don't understand, Jeff. No, I don't. I mean, You and Mike like, talked quite a bit I, about going to the midnight I, showings I, of The Phantom Menace. I, I understand in a di- I understand in my context, right? Yes. I don't understand in that, but I, I respect that. Twilight was like my era. Like I read, I, I read, shut up. <laughs> I read that first book within less than 36 hours. And me and my friends went to the midnight showings of these movies every single time. So to find out, so she was, for those who know they're, they're bringing together a bunch of vampires to face off against the Volturi. And she is one of those people that comes to show their support. And I found this out and I freaked out. I feel like my life is made now. That's it? You've peaked? No, that's terrible to say. I think I can go <laughs> higher than that. We can go higher than that. <laughs> but still, cool nonetheless. That's pretty neat. Is it time to get to murder? Yeah. I think so. Yeah, pastime. It's not a pastime. I mean, it's... I mean, I guess it was. I mean, that, that's what serial killers, right? And then it's pastime. No. <laughs> that was pretty good. On the night of April 6th, 1830... 82-year-old Captain Joseph White would retire a little bit earlier than his usual, a little before 10 p.m. The next morning, he would be found dead, lying in his bed, having been bludgeoned and stabbed in his sleep. He was a wealthy merchant of Salem, and this quickly becomes an extremely high-profile murder. Today, we're going to dive into the crime, the trial that followed, and the legacy that you can still see lingering today. Murder. A murder most foul. So let's set the scene. Salem, 1830, and who was Captain White? So, uh, 1830 Salem, we are past Derby's uh, heyday. We are past the great age of sale. Uh, arguably, we got a little bit of an economic downturn uh, post-war of 1812. But remember, you just said he's old. Uh, so he made a lot of his money in the prime of Salem. So he's sitting pretty, living rich on Essex Street. He was one of those guys going out as a privateer. Yeah. Remember, during those wars, especially the Revolutionary, they're taking those trading ships, those merchant ships, and going, capturing British ships, British goods, bringing all that money back to Salem. There's a ton of money coming in. And then, of course, we see an economic boom from the international trade that follows. Mm -hmm. So white is one of these individuals that's making a good amount of money from this. So he was only nine years younger than Derby. And I may have even seen at one point when we were researching Derby that he was one of his captains working under him. I'd, I'd seen, seen that I I wasn't uh, that sometimes these things are hard to get the bottom of. But they at least ran the same circles and, and worked amongst each other. Although likely White was actually out on the ship when, remember, Derby just sat in his office. Right, right, right. They were contemporaries. Yeah. And Derby dies uh, 30 years prior, but White lives on. Yeah, just imagine if Derby hadn't 
have died in 1799, they probably would have been like buddy, buddy. They were just a couple blocks away yeah. from each other. Grumpy old men, 1830, get off my lawn. Get off my lawn. <laughs> get out of my garden. That's what he said. To, oh, spoilers there. We can't get to that bit yet. Which one? Get out of my garden because the guy sneaks in the garden. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, oh very, nice. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. We'll get there. We'll get there. Um, um, and while Derby makes a lot of his money in uh, spice and pepper um, and cloth in China, uh, White makes his money in that, but he's involved in another trade as well. So Captain Joseph White was actually known, well known for being involved in the slave trade mm-hmm. and not just known for it, but boasted of it. He had told a minister in town he had no reluctance, quote, no reluctance in selling any part of the human race. So this is a guy that had a lot of power, had a lot of money, and really wasn't, didn't really care how he made it. And th- this is in like the great age of sale when he makes that boast. So like everyone's coming in, like all this traffic and stuff. He's like, I'm going to make my money in people. Like, dude. So slave owning had been outlawed in Massachusetts in 1783, mm-hmm. but it was still going on behind the scenes. And a lot of people, a lot of merchants in town, white wasn't the only one they're bringing in money because of that. So basically he would send out ships with goods on them, go to Africa, trade for humans, and then go down to the Caribbean, trade them for money and other goods, and then bring that money back to Salem. Yeah. So that's so kind of how you get around it. It was like a little, Side gigs, not the right term, but like illegitimate. Yeah. Yeah. So the goods that he's selling up in Salem had likely been financed by the slaves that he had sold in the Caribbean. So all of this that we're going to be talking about happens at what is now 128 Essex Street. And you can go still see the house, and we're going to talk about this several more times. But when you stand there, sort of picture 1830 Salem, picture that house, picture the amount of wealth that this man has. His estate is, is large. Uh, his coffers are overflowing. And we know that uh, at this point, his estate uh, is valued at about $13 million. Um, and so when you stand there, think of that, right? Like, like understand that level of, of, of wealth that, that they're coming off of. And, and that's $13, $13 million in today's money. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, so it was probably about two, it was probably about four to $500,000 back then, which is like a, a lot. A ton. Yeah. We are dealing with like not quite derby wealth, but a good eh. close. Yeah. And uh, this, of course, is one of the driving factors in this story. He had purchased this home 16 years prior, and I think just like Derby, probably thought he'd enjoy a nice retirement. He did, for the most part. I mean, 15 years retired is good. Better better than Derby. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Poor guy only lasted a year in his mansion. And he wasn't even killed. He just died. Yeah. Yeah. But this is all going to come to an end on April 7th, 1830. So in the early morning hours, around 6 a.m., Benjamin White, now this is a distant relative of Captain White living in the household with him, working as his handyman. Yes, he's a groundskeeper, handyman, 
uh, just general butler kind of jobs. He wakes up to feel a bit of a draft in the house. Upon investigation, discovers that a back window was left open. The lock had been removed, and there was a plank of wood that was acting as a ramp from the ground to the top of the window. And uh, it was also sealed. I, I'd read somewhere there was a bar. Yeah, I did. So I read a, as well. There's a lock and a bar, and I'm not 100% sure what that would like visually look like, but just so that we understand, it's not just someone like coming in and like turning the latch on the window. It was like distinctly tampered with. His first thought, robbery. Right, because all the money, all, right. the, all the wealth, all the, the, the gold-plated china and candlesticks and I don't know, whatever else. Everything, yeah. everything. So he immediately goes to another servant who was living in the house. Her name was Lydia Kimball. He then moves upstairs to the captain's room to alert him to the possible intruder. And what does he find? Oh, he finds a gruesome scene. The door is ajar. He sees Captain White laying diagonally across his bed. There is a visible wound on his left temple, and he's got blood soaking through his night clothes. Yeah. So I, I always question the state of this scene because to have so so there's no blood, I guess, on, on his on his head or like on his pillows, but the visible so he's Whatever had happened to his his head was severe enough that it could be seen, but the skin hadn't broken. And then, like, just the pools, small pools of blood uh, on his nightshirt. Um, Incredibly disturbing yeah. for anyone to find. So this is obviously not... It's not a robbery. It's, it's not, not a B&E. Someone didn't come in the back door to steal the stuff. Uh, they came in for, it would seem, the sole purpose to kill Captain White, bludgeoning, bludgeoning him over the head and then viciously stabbing the body. The first thing he does, he leaves, he, he goes out to the street and he alerts several neighbors uh, to the situation and so that, you know, calling alarm, basically. Now, aside from Benjamin and Lydia living in the house, we should also mention that he has a niece that lives with him as well named Mary Beckford. She's in her 40s at this point. But this night she was not there. She was staying at her daughter's house in Wenham. About seven miles away. And Mary Beckford would have been the closest to him in the house. So convenient. Mm -hmm. Yeah, convenient that the, the one in an adjacent room is is not there. Now her daughter Mary, who's living in Wenham... She used to live in the house with her mother and Captain White, but she didn't live there anymore. This would be the captain's grand niece. Mm -hmm. But three years prior to this murder, they had had a falling out. She marries someone by the name of Joseph Knapp Jr. It, it seems uh, pretty plausible, and sometimes these details are sort of hard to figure out, that Knapp worked for White. Yep. Um. And so then if you maybe sort of put two and two together, that maybe you you might get a different measure of a man um, in, a, in a job than, than what he's like personally. And I'm not saying one way or the other, but maybe White saw a different side of him. From what I read, it seemed like 
white thought of Joseph Knapp as a fortune hunter, mm-hmm. um, was just kind of out to secure his own future he, and he, thought that by marrying into the family, yeah. he could do so. So he's, he's basically marrying the boss's daughter. I mean, it's grand niece, but he didn't have any kids of his own, um, by the way. Uh, so all that big fortune was going to be inherited by his nieces and nephews. If you're starting to pick up on what's what's going on here. Yeah, picking up what we're laying down. <laughs> that, that trail of breadcrumbs through the woods. Bloody breadcrumbs. <gasps> Ooh. <laughs> Bloody breadcrumbs and haunted pepper. So the first person to be contacted about the murder is Stephen White, Captain Joseph White's nephew. Mm-hmm. So he is going to be Mary's cousin. He's a prominent businessman, a member of Salem High Society, and he is also part of the Massachusetts State Legislature. So this is like a big deal already because Captain White is such a a wealthy, well-known person in town, but he also has a lot of high-level familial connections. It's going to blow up very quickly. And we're going to see this come into play more and more as we, we delve into the story. Stephen White calls upon Samuel Johnson of Salem. He was a physician. He came immediately to examine the body. He determines that the body is not quite cold. The murder most likely took place somewhere between three to four hours prior. So basically the guy was killed in the middle of the night. At like 2 a.m., which I don't believe. Midnight to 2, somewhere around there. Stephen White also calls upon the captain's business assistant and clerk, William Ward. And Ward is the one that takes note of the footprints that lead to and from the open window. Which is pretty cool. Uh, So they don't actually use them as any forensic evidence, which is a little bit unfortunate. But we do have a record of them, and he does cover them up with a a tin. Uh, So basically, this is early April. It's still... Warm enough during the day for the ground to get a little muddy and cold enough at night for it to get cold. So someone has made like a squishing sound, <laughs> you like that, in, in the mud and left their footprints. He makes note of them, conceals them, uh, but that's about all they do, um, which is a bit unfortunate. And there are some articles that I've read that people, uh, the people, 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 dinosaur people. Paleontologists? No, the archaeologists. are Paleontologists are dinosaur are, people. Yes, but that's not the word I was looking for, but thank you. (laughs) Uh, Have used plaster or have been using plaster to like mold and cast things already. So that is a a thing that has been used. But not in the context of criminal investigations. Forensics is just in its infancy at this point. So it's really cool to see like someone make a note of forensic evidence but they they don't know enough to like. But that's a quick, easy way to rule out people in the house too. Yeah, and you just yeah make sure that their feet don't match that foot, and then mm-hmm. there you go. What? How big were Stephen's feet? Bigger or smaller? He's not the guy. Samuel Johnson, the physician, is also the one that conducts the autopsy. There's actually two autopsies that are done, both in front of a coroner's jury. People assigned to help determine what caused the death. And if it was indeed a murder. So in the first autopsy, they identify a major blow to the head and 13 stab wounds near the heart. Which I've I've always loved. And I know like every time I say this on tour, 
I, I know that you say you love it on they, tour. No, 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 no. I, oh. <laughs> I love this narrative. Okay. And I know that on tour, like every night when I say he was stabbed 13 times, like there's gotta be an inkling of people just don't believe me because it's 13. Right. Lucky right? number 13. It, it's, you're in Salem. You're talking about a murder guy who stabbed 13 times. You're like, no, no, no. That's what you make up. That's not reality. That is what you write in a murder novel. That's what you put in a horror movie. That's what you do to scare the kids. He was stabbed 13 times. But it's legit. It is legit. (laughs) It is serious. Two coroner reports both confirming he is stabbed 13 times. In and around the heart with something called a dirk, which is kind of like a short double-edged dagger. Yeah, it's just a little knife. Can I, can I expand on the stab wounds? Of course. <clears throat> he counted 13 stab wounds, five stabs in the region of the heart, three to the front of the left pap, which is going to be your peck, and five others still further back as though the arm had been lifted up and the instrument struck underneath, <laughs> which is like a, a lot. A lot. And, and that's one of the things that like drives this narrative forward. Someone comes in, bashes him, and then that's like a... Making sure they're dead? Yeah. It's in the second autopsy, which actually was quite uncommon to have two autopsies uh, performed during this time. But it's during the second autopsy that they establish the blow to the head, which would have been likely done with a large um, club of some sort, that is what ultimately killed Captain White or at least stunned him to the point where his blood had slowed because they didn't really find a lot of blood splatter. Right. So if you're stabbing someone 13 times, you know, knife goes in, comes out. If the heart is still pumping, uh, it's going to pump blood out of that wound. Uh, all the stab wounds to his chest. and his There might have been area. some spraying on the like, walls. Right. Like on his bedclothes, on the curtains, on the ceiling. Like you're coming in and out. And every time that knife comes out, blood is spurting out of that. And there is none of that. I don't want to say it's a totally clean crime scene. But from the descriptions we have, there is very little blood on his night clothes. Um, and from this, they correctly determine that that, must, that blow to the skull um, must have either killed him outright or uh, put him on, on death's door. Now this autopsy was published in the local newspaper and this has never happened before. So th- th- this is Stevens doing, right? Yes. Yeah. I, and I think it was very much to, to get it out there because yeah. they really didn't have any leads. Yeah. There were so many suspects. There are so many people that did have something to gain from killing white and that just didn't like the guy. Right. He's slaver. He's got a fortune. We'll get into some other stuff, but he's not like, you know, the, the crowned mayor of Salem. He's like the grumpy old man. You're like, who's going to want to kill him? You're like, oh, <laughs> a lot of people. So I used to give ghost tours, as mm-hmm. I've mentioned. And one of the stops was in front of the Gardner Pingree house. And the way I tried to get people to understand just how sensationalized this was and how, quickly it spread. I like to think of it as like the OJ Simpson case, not in the content, but like the sensationalization of it. Like it is everywhere. It is, it's, it's, it's in every newspaper. Everyone's talking about it. There's rumors circulating. They're gossiping. Like it is a huge, huge thing. I think that was my 
first big, I'm born in 93. I remember. So like that happened, what, 95? I remember seeing the white Bronco on the highway, like photographs of that on the tabloids in the checkout line at the grocery store. Just it stuck out so clearly in my mind. And I think for a lot of these folks, this was the first time that they had really seen something like this blow up. Because it is, many people will say, the first nationally published local news story. I, I like to use the word trending. <laughs> that's, which, a good, that's yeah. But but everyone's sort of like, oh, ha ha. And then, but they, they immediately get like what that means. And I'm like, just imagine nothing like this has that you've never had a trending news story ever. And uh, we have some newspaper quotes just to give you an idea. Yeah, let's hear some of those headlines. Well, I think the most famous one comes from um, the uh, Rhode Island American. Uh, and if, you, if you're on tour with a good tour guide in, in, in Salem, they'll probably tell you this. And it is Salem forever stained with blood, blood, blood. <laughs> right? but that, that's real. Um, the uh, New Hampshire Patriot was an assassination of almost unexampled atrocity. Uh, the Pittsfield Sun, one of the most deliberate and horrible murders. The annals of crime in this country can furnish. So Pittsfield being Western Mass. Yeah, yeah. So we've got... Literally, I think, and I could be wrong, Pittsfield is the last town before you hit New York. So from coast, from one end of Massachusetts... To the other. To the other. And down to Rhode Island. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it made its way all over New England. And by the end of it, Everyone is keeping up with this story. So pretty much immediately after Captain White's funeral, the Committee of Vigilance is formed. Now, this is a group of 27 people. They all swear an oath of secrecy, and they are basically in charge of figuring out who done it. So what we need to sort of understand as well here is that police policing as we know it, isn't really a thing. Uh, there is no police force. There's no, that obviously comes out of slavery uh, and that sort of stuff. But what we got going on here is like, there's some sheriff, there's like a sheriff um, who can deputize and like sort of make arrests when there's issues or, you know, con- uh, constabulatory. That's probably not the right word, right? Maybe constables and whatnot that, that, yeah. But there's no who's investigating. There's right, no there's detectives. No, there's yeah. no walking a beat. There's no uh, who's arresting and any of these things. So they establish this committee of local members of the community to try and get to the bottom of this. Weeks and weeks go by. Yeah, th- this committee's kind of useless. Yeah, it, they're not doing so hot. I mean, they're not detectives. You know, there's there's nothing really to, to go on. They offer a reward for any information, hoping that someone comes forward, but that, uh, you're you're right; they don't really get is too that a, much. A thousand dollars. A thousand dollars. Which was what about thirty thousand dollars today? Yeah, so That's quite a, a quite a bit of money. Good chunk of change. But you got to have information, right? And no one seems to have any. They do have someone come forward though with a interesting piece of information seemingly unrelated to captain white's murder but uh 
we'll let you decide. So Joseph Knapp Jr. Uh, Remember the guy that married Mary Jr. Right. So this is Captain White's grand nephew-in-law. Thank you. <laughs> grand nephew-in-law. Uh, April 27th. So we've got about 20 days later, which is about three weeks. Um, him and his brother, Frank, uh, and, and another friend of theirs make this claim that between the house in Wenham, which is where White's grandniece lives and where his niece was the night of the murder, uh, that between that house and here, they were set upon by some dastardly highwaymen and their carriage was set upon and, and they were robbed at night. And then the men fled into the woods, basically. So as if Salem wasn't already in a bit of shock and fearing that there is some crazed murder out there, this just is going to add to it. Which is then going to make everyone assume that whoever had likely set upon uh, Captain White is now setting upon White's grandnephew-in-law coming from White's grandniece's house in Wenham. So this is a, a torrid family affair. Uh-huh. Maybe. Suspicious. It's not too long after that that we get what seems to be an actual break in the case. Not from in Salem, though. This information is going to come from a prisoner down in New Bedford. So if you are familiar with Massachusetts, you'll know that that's about 70 miles south of Salem. So below Boston, there was a gentleman that went by the name of Hatch. He was a petty thief imprisoned there, and he claimed to have information on Captain White's murderers. So Stephen White, Captain White's nephew, and who's kind of funding this vigilance committee, he receives a letter from a jailer down in New Bedford claiming that this petty thief Hatch had information on the crime. He had overheard while he was frequenting some gambling houses that two brothers, Richard and George Crowninshield, were discussing a crime that they were going to commit against Captain White back in February. And the plot thickens. They get the letter, and uh, the Committee of Vigilance actually brings Hatch up to Salem to testify before a grand jury, and he tells them that Richard and George Crownshield are discussing this. And that name, Crownshield, may be familiar to some of you if you're uh, from Salem, uh, if you come to Salem, you may have seen their headstones in the Charter Street bearing point. They're huge. Uh, they are prominent, uh, wealthy members of the community. At this point, there's actually a crown and shield wharf. Yeah. Like we've got Derby Wharf still today, but back then they had an even larger wharf. Again, we're getting more into the, the, the wealthy Salemites. But they are also known to be uh, a bit of ruffians, would you say? Well... I think there's a few ways to look at this. Uh, so Richard and George Crownshield uh, are born into a family with exceeding amount of money. Um, and I have both read a few different narratives that they were kind of ruffians. They'd sort of um, gotten in trouble with the law. Nothing had ever stuck. And I don't know. I, I can't help but uh, sort of draw comparisons to today's world where, you know, these young super rich kids get away with these crimes because they have money and they're just, they think that the world is their oyster 
And I, there's not a significant amount of evidence to show that, but you know, when you look at, Oh, these two kids, they kept getting in trouble and you're like, yeah, with the millions that they had, are they really troublemakers or are they just spoiled kids? All you have to do is flash that name and you can probably get away with most things till now when they are arrested. Both the crowning shield brothers are arrested along with two other men that they were identified with in that gambling house. Um, Those two will very quickly be released as they are proven to not be involved with the crime. Mm -hmm. And I think this speaks to your, your comment just now about, you know, rich kids not thinking that they're going to get anything bad dished to them. We're going to talk about crown shield in jail. Yeah. He was just <laughs> like, he was chilling. Yeah. He asked for reading material, like, he, like musical instruments. Yeah, He's sitting there like reading. And I can't remember the names of the books. I'm sorry. Uh, but they're like philosophy and like, you know, these higher end, you know, it's not like, Oh, can I have a magazine? He's reading like Shakespeare and like playing the lute in his, in his jail cell as if like he's not a care in the world. But I mean, honestly, they didn't have anything on him other than Hatch. Who is disreputable. Within a week and a half after that, the Vigilance Committee gets another bit of evidence. So this part of the story really reads to me like a crime novel. Yeah. It's it's straight out. Like they need to make a movie out of it. Not only is the guy stabbed 13 times on the night of the full moon, by the way. <laughs> yeah, we forgot to mention that. <laughs> like, like I'm dead serious. Guys stabbed 13 times the night of the full moon in Salem. Like, we're not, I, I promise you, we're not making this up, but it gets better. They need to make a movie out of this. Yeah. Joseph Knapp Sr. So this is Joseph Knapp Jr.'s father. Comes to the vigilance committee with a letter. Now, remember, this is the father of Joe Knapp. Husband to Mary Jr. Who was set upon in the woods by the, the gang gang of wild highwaymen. The letter is from a Charles Grant Jr. up in Belfast, Maine. Okay, so so hold on. And, and I just realized, I literally, so we have this going on in Salem. The first bit of evidence comes from like 70 miles south. And the next bit of evidence comes from like 70 miles north. Yeah. If this hadn't had spread the way it did. With all those news articles. They probably would have never gotten any leads on the case. Huh. New, journalistic integrity. That's what that's what we have here. That's what the story comes down to. Love it. So the letter reads, Dear Sir, I have taken the pen at this time to address an utter stranger. And strange as it may seem to you, it is for the purpose of requesting the loan of $350, for which I can give you no security but my word, and in this case consider this to be sufficient. My call for money at this time is pressing, or I would not trouble you, but with that sum I have the prospect of turning it to so much advantage as to be able to refund it with interest in the course of six months. Hold on, hold on. So he's asking for money, this tune of $350,000 alone, that he's going to invest it and then return? Yes. Okay, okay, just, just trying to understand. 
At all events, I think it will be for your interest to comply with my request. And that Im- that sounded like a threat. Oh, it gets more threatening. Okay, okay. And that immediately, that is, not to put off any longer than you receive this. Then set down and enclose me the money with as much dispatch as possible for your own interest. Of course, of course. This, sir, is my advice. And if you do not comply with it, the short period between now and November will convince you that you have denied a request, the granting of which will never injure you, the refusal of which will ruin you. Are you surprised at this assertion? Rest assured that I make it reserving to myself the reasons and a series of facts which are founded on such a bottom as will bid defiance to property or quality. It is useless for me to enter into a discussion of facts which must inevitably harrow up your soul. No, I will merely tell you that I am acquainted with your brother Frank and also the business that he was transacting for you on the 2nd of April last, and that I think that you were very extravagant in giving $1,000 to the person that would execute the business for you. But you know best about that. (laughs) You see that such things will leak out. Okay, hold on, hold on. So he, he knows. He knows. Like that, that sounds like some real detailed insider information. And, and he, he's turned around and he's saying, I know everything you've done, so pay me or else. I love how he calls it a loan. Yeah, he's like, And oh. says he'll pay it back. Which I, I've always found a little weird. But it's definitely like a, I'd suggest you loan me some money or, or else some people might get some information. I think it's still technically blackmail. Oh no, it's unequivocally blackmail. <laughs> he's just he's just right re- it's weird because it is like unequivocally blackmail, but he's also writing it from like a casual point of view like, "Oh, well, you know, it would be in your best interest, but I know where you were or else." <laughs> so it kind of bounces between like this real threatening and this real kind of casual. Uh-huh. It's not kind like of- the- Kind of cheeky at times. It's not like the Godfather was like, oh, you could, you know, do me a favor. And everyone just knows what the favor is. He's like, you could do me a favor of lending me this money or else. Mm-hmm. Oh, just wait, just wait. Last line or okay. last last okay. paragraph. Okay. To conclude, sir, I will inform you that there is a gentleman of my acquaintance in Salem that will observe that you do not leave town before the 1st of June, giving you sufficient time between now and then to comply with my request. And if I do not receive a line from you together with the above sum before the 2nd of this month, I shall wait upon you with an assistant. I have said enough to convince you of my knowledge and merely inform you that you can, when you answer, be as brief as possible. Direct yours to Charles Grant Jr. of Prospect, Maine. So basically, he is saying, give me this money. Or else. Or else. And if you don't, I've got someone watching you. That's like a little creepy, but you know, hey. So this letter was addressed to Joseph Knapp Sr., but... Given the context clues and, quote, your brother Frank, I think we can deduce that this was meant for Joseph Knapp Jr. 
So clearly, and, and that's, and I know I'm, I know I get confused. I, I know, I don't want to say I know this inside and out, but I'm pretty well versed in, in this whole thing. And I still, we're sitting here, Joe, nah, no, Frank, Joe, Mary, Crown, White. And so I find it very easily that Mr. Charles Grant Jr. may have just left the junior off or, or maybe the dad had just opened it, not even like paying it. Oh, no, Mr. Knapp. Okay. Pick it up. That's to me. And he sees this and he goes, wait a minute, Frank brother, not Frank son. That's clearly. And given everything that's going on, everyone is on a high alert. Yeah. So he immediately goes to Wenham, confronts his two sons about it. What, what, what is this nonsense? I received this letter in the mail and rah, 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 rah. And what does Joseph Knapp Jr. tell him to do? Probably like the stupidest thing. Okay, well, we all know if you haven't figured, we all know the stupidest thing that he did was. Uh, <laughs> but maybe like the second most stupid thing is he's just like, oh, well, why don't you just pass that to the Committee of Vigilance? And you're like, of all the choices, you could have. Yeah, if you haven't already figured out yet, he has some ties to this murder. Yeah. And at this moment, he could have just buried that letter. Although I'm sure this guy would have come for him eventually. It would have came out. Probably, but I don't know. I I feel like at, at this point, maybe coming clean to your dad and then being like, we need to deal with this. This guy's going to, we, we uh, under the cover, we can do it something right or taking the letter and being like oh oh this must be a ruse um he could have turned around and said i'd i'd heard of a, a similar letter sent to to someone else and and then he could have you know maybe some other prominent families in salem and mocked up similar letters and like i'm literally just thinking about this off the cuff i but to turn around and to turn over this letter to the committee of vigilance I would say is inevitably his undoing. The next few bits of information are all happen sort of within the same time. So just bear with us chronologically. The committee receives a couple more letters from Charles Grant Jr. Although this one is signed differently. This one just says yours grant. And then the second one just says grant. So, so the first one seems eloquent, Grant Jr., et cetera. Then this one's just yours, Grant. And the next one's just Grant as he's getting more frustrated. And the first letter is a bit more extensive. Yeah. These two are shorter. Um, and that first letter came in on the 15th mm-hmm. and is dated the 12th of May. These ones are dated the 12th and 13th. Mm. So right around the same time. Don't be suspicious. Gentlemen of the Committee of Vigilance, hearing that you have taken up four men on suspicion of being concerned in the murder of Mr. White, I think it time to inform you that Stephen White came to me one night and told me if I would remove the old gentleman, he would give me $5,000. That's a lot of money. But hold on, hold on. That's, that's slightly in contrary... To the previous letter. That is a total 180 Did, from the previous. Did he say $1,000 in the previous letter? He said 350 in the previous no, no, letter. No, no, he was asking for 350 but he said that, oh, no, no, never mind, never mind. He said that he had overheard that he was going to pay someone $1,000 to do this. So now he's saying that. 
Now we're talking about Stephen White. Well, how much is that? $150,000? Yep, about that. Oh. He said he was afraid he would alter his will if he lived any longer. I told him I would do it, but I was afeard to go into the house. So he said he would go with me and he would try to get into the house in the evening and open the window. He said he was afraid he would alter his will if he lived any longer. I told him I would do it, but I was afeard to go into the house. So he said he would go with me and he would try to get into the house in the evening and open the window. Would oh, then we, we we had an open window. I know. This this all sounds very familiar. Interesting. Would then go home and go to bed and meet me again about eleven. I found him and we both went into his chamber. Oh interesting. That the the second autopsy said perhaps there's two men. I struck him on the hand I struck him on the head with a heavy piece of lead and then stabbed him with a dirk. He made the finishing strokes with another. He promised to send me the money next evening and has not sent it yet, which is the reason that I mentioned this. So this is a confession letter to the murder. Basically, yeah. <gasps> Saying that he was hired by Stephen White, nephew that, of the captain. The member of the Massachusetts State Legislature. Uh-huh. Shocking. Scandal. Another letter follows. This one actually claims that it comes from Lynn. So a couple towns south of Salem, not Maine, like the previous one. This one says, Mr. White will send the 5,000 or part of it before tomorrow night or suffer the painful consequences. That sounds like he's send the money or I'll kill you. He's already admitted to killing someone in the previous letter. Uh-huh. Oh, goodness. I know. So this is... This is a big scandal. I think we got a break in the case. The, the plot thickens. Who is this Grant individual? He's the murderer. Obviously. Clearly. Of course. He wrote it himself. And gave us some great details about it, too. Things that only the murderer should know, right? Or someone directly involved in the case. So what does the committee vigilance do? Well, this first Grant said to send the money up north. Maybe, clever idea to be fair, if they send the money and then leave a party laying in wait to watch who comes and picks up the money from the post office. Boom, you got your killer. Got it. So that's what they do. They send up an individual with $50, not $350, and wait at the post office. Someone does come to collect that money. Uh, No? Unfortunately. No? No. Oh, oh, goodness. So it turns out this person whose real name was John Palmer, he was looking to get a little payday and extort Joseph Knapp Jr. So he sent the letters. He sent that first letter. The first letter. The first letter. So the first letter where in which he outlines what he overheard the Crown Shields plotting the case back in February and trying to extort Joseph Knapp Jr. for money. That first letter is in his land, is in his hand, and that's where we are now. The vigilance committee will make a move to arrest him. Of course, he's got information on yeah. this murder, and he 
gladly looking to avoid any prosecution mm-hmm. on his end gives a statement. <clears throat> so Palmer's statement uh, to the committee of vigilance, I have been an associate of George and Richard crown and shield. And on April 2nd, 1830, I was sitting by a window in their house and saw Frank Knapp and Charles Allen drive up the crown and shield brothers, Knapp and Allen then went for a walk. So just interject what what's going on here is George and Richard Crownshield and Frank Knapp and Charles Allen are all going for a walk. Okay. And it reads a little confusing. <clears throat> Upon their return, George and Richard informed me that Frank Knapp had asked them to kill Mr. White and that Joseph Knapp Jr. would pay a thousand dollars for the job. Several different models of executing it were discussed. But when it was finally decided to kill him at night, when Mrs. Beckford was not home. Oh, shit. And the curtain falls. My God, we got it. <laughs> so this is huge. The, the the big reveal, maybe? Almost. We're getting there. We're A getting bit. there. We've got more assailants. So we've already got the Crowning Shield brothers in jail. Yes. But now it's time to go after the Knapp brothers. Because now we've made that connection. Now we know. Because I'm sure before this... With Hatch's discussion of the crown shields, you're like, okay, cool, the crown shields did this. Why? What's the motive? And now it seems that we have the motive because we have Frank Knapp, Joseph Knapp Jr.'s brother, talking about killing Joseph Knapp Jr.'s granduncle-in-law. Ta-da! So we've got the motive, we've got the names, and the Committee of Vigilance is going to move. They are going to arrest Joseph Knapp Jr. and his brother, Frank Knapp. Everything is coming together. The The walls are closing in or have closed. And again, from another prominent family. Yeah. And it's just, again, it, it, this sort of tone, this repeat, this murder for money and, and, and whatnot. We can sort of see how it's all playing out. Now, whereas Richard Crown and Shield was, I don't know, I guess you could say just chilling in jail didn't think that they had much on him. Joseph Knapp, he doesn't last as long. Uh, Sweating? Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Right off the bat, he pens a full confession after just three days. And interestingly, this is also after uh, he's pushed, we don't know, but he has a discussion with his other brother, and uh, the clergy member uh, th- that they know well, a family man. Um, a third brother, not not the other co-conspirator. Right, right, right. And it's after discussing with the brother and the clergy member uh, that he writes the confession. He is also promised a, well, not promised, um, but sort of- uh, Suggested. Suggested, thank you, that he will likely get a pardon if he turns state's evidence. So basically- uh, his brother and the member of the clergy who likely have discussed this with, I, I don't know. Probably people in the court system. Right. Someone. that They're like, hey, man, we, listen, this is what you got to do. You got to come clean. You got to confess. If you come up with a confession, you roll on the crown and shields. Like, they're just going to give you a pardon at the end of the day. There's nothing to worry about. We're going to make sure you get out of this. Wink, wink. This confession is juicy. And we are going to read it to you because it pretty much explains Everything, and not just what happened on that night of April 6th. I knew that Mr. White 
had made out a will in which he gave my mother-in-law, Mrs. Beckford, a legacy of $15,000. According to my understanding of the law, which I have since learned was ero- was erroneous, and like, hold on, I just got to pause here. Within the first two lines of his confession, we, we get down the whole reason that this happened, and it's literally a mistake. He's like, oh, whoops, my understanding of the law was wrong, so I went out and killed a guy, and now here we all are. If, like, he had just double-checked. <laughs> so he went on to say, I believed she would get $200,000 if no will was found. So his assumption was if Captain White dies without a will, that fortune will be sizable. Just split down the middle. To both Stephen White and Mary Beckford, which hopefully eventually, I don't know how long he expected it to take to get to him, but he assumed that that would eventually trickle down to him. Yeah. So we continue. I therefore decided to steal the will and have Mr. White assassinated. Four days before the murder, I was in Mr. White's chamber, and procuring the key to his iron chest, I took his will and carried it home, burning it several days later. My brother Frank negotiated with Richard Crownshield, who agreed to do the deed for a thousand dollars. The night of April 6th was finally decided upon, and I persuaded my mother-in-law to spend a few days with my wife at Wenham. So now we know why Mary Beckford was not in the house. Ta-da. On the, I believe this is what they would consider first-degree murder in modern day, because it is completely planned out. Premeditated. Yep. Thank you. Look at us. We're like in- Ex- experts. Investigators. <laughs> Just kidding. (laughs) On the 6th, I visited Mr. White's home, to which I always had access, and unfastened the window at the back of the rear parlor. That day, Crown and Shield showed me the bludgeon and dagger with which the murder was to be committed. Crown and Shield and my brother Frank met at 10 o'clock that night by appointment and proceeded to a spot where they could observe the movements in White's mansion. It was a beautiful moonlight Night. Aw. Yeah. Crown and Shield requested Frank to go home. He left, but soon returned. During his absence, the lights in the mansion were extinguished, and shortly afterwards the hired assassin placed a plank against the house, entered the window, and crept upstairs to White's sleeping chambers. The moon was shining through the window onto the old man's face. Crown Shield swung his bludgeon and struck White on the left temple, probably killing him instantly. But, to be certain, he lowered the bedclothes and stabbed him repeatedly in the region of his heart. He then felt his pulse and being satisfied that the job was well done, he departed. He met Frank on a side street and explained in detail what he had done. After hiding the bludgeon under the steps of a meeting house on Howard Street, he returned to Danvers. I was at home in Wenham on this night. A few days later, Crown and Shield, accompanied by my brother Frank, called on me at my house in Wenham and demanded his money. I was only able to pay him 105 franc pieces. He related to me all the details of the assassination, and I informed him that our work had all been in vain, that the will I stole was not the last one, and even if it had been, my object would not have been accomplished because of my misunderstanding of the law. 
The story my brother and I told the Vigilance Committee on April 27th in regard to the alleged robbery was sheer fabrication. It was I who wrote the two anonymous letters. Boom. Done. That's it. That's that's the entire... all Everything. Not just the night of the murder, but we've got him... Planning? Ad- scheming? Ad- admitting to the fact that he tried to... Steer them the in the wrong direction. Wrong, that he lied. He, he did the the forged letters. What the other uh, people did. Where the murder weapon was. We've got it all now. One kind of really cool thing a, a, about this is the one hundred five franc pieces that he he pays him with. Uh, so in in some of the uh, back research uh, of this, uh, we learn he had acquired this money and that franc pieces were somewhat rare, and he had had them stored in the bank. Now, for those of you who are local to Salem, and for some of you listening, you may be familiar with 11 Central Street. The Deal Marcus building uh, was originally opened as a bank. So in 1830, this was the first bank of Salem. So he may have put them in there. I I'm like... 99% sure he put them in there. Would that have been the vault that we were in? Yes, the the, the back secret bank vault. Oh my gosh. Yes. So uh, for the owners of uh, Deal Marcus, Chris and Erica, when you uh, go out into your garden and relax in your bank vault, um, know that that is where murder money was kept. Scandal. <laughs> I just had a visual of Captain White's ghost leaving the Gardner Pingree house and like <laughs> you kind just... of wandering down Essex Street and then coming down Central to haunt Deal Marcus. Yeah, I can only imagine they had to go up those stairs into that building to, to get the literal blood money for the murder from the bank vault. We so often just just forget the the where we walk and, and, and who's walked there before us. Very cool tidbit. Following Knapp's uh, confession, this, this then drives Crown and Shield to um, an unfortunate end. Things are going to take a complete turn on June 15th. Richard Crown and Shield is found hanging dead in his cell. It appeared that he had committed suicide by way of tying two silk handkerchiefs together. Now I say it appeared because I think this is still debated today. I would I would come on the side of uh, he was either murdered or coerced into killing himself. Uh, one of the two. Because what ends up happening at this point now we're getting to some slightly complicated legal issues, but bear with us. Eight, it's integral to this story. Yeah. Uh, it's like the foundation of everything that happens next. Uh, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts in 1830, you could not uh, bring to trial or try someone for an accessory to a crime without having found guilty the principal of that crime. So with no principal murderer, you cannot bring an accessory to murder. And as Richard Crowninshield is the principal murderer, if he's gone, everyone else who's a quote-unquote accessory, in theory, should not be able to be prosecuted. So there is this idea 
that floats around that he may have taken his own life to save his brother mm-hmm. in particular and possibly even the Knapp brothers, which I'm not a huge fan of that angle because the dude literally just threw him under the bus completely. Right. Without this confession, I don't think Richard would have ever no. No. done this. No. Um, I, I am on the side of him taking his own life, whether it was to save his brother's life possibly, or just because Richard sounds kind of like, I don't know, kind of a cocky guy. I don't think he anticipated having to pay for these transgressions. I don't think he wanted to stand trial or have to face the responsibility. So he decided to go out on his own terms. You mean facing the consequences of your own actions? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Now he does leave two suicide notes. He pens one to his father and one to his brother. And just a quick heads up, trigger warning, we are going to be reading the suicide note. Yes. I also wanted to note that these suicide notes are published in several newspapers. Um, The one I'm pulling it from in particular is from Saratoga Springs, New York. So the people in Saratoga are reading Richard Crowninshield's suicide notes. So again, to come back to how far this this news has spread how 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 widely published this story is so i'm just going to read the one to his brother it's dated salem june 15th 1830 dear brother may god and your innocence guide you safe through this trial had i taken your advice i would still enjoy life liberty and a clear conscience but i have not and perceive my case to be hopeless Therefore, I have come to the determination to deprive them of the pleasure of beholding me publicly executed, as after I am condemned, they will not give me the opportunity, and may God forgive me. George, this is an awful warning to you, and I hope it will be the means of reforming many to virtue, albeit they may meet with success at the commencement of vice. It is short-lived, and sooner or later, if they persist in it, they will meet with a similar fate to mine. Oh, George, forgive me for what I have caused you and others to suffer on my account, and my last benediction rests upon you. A long, a last adieu. Richard Crowninshield, Jr. It's heavy. It is. And uh, I, I can see in there where it, where we get that narrative of, of uh, sort of taking his own life to save his brother. So I guess that might actually be a correct sort of term to use. Um, it's not in the legal sense. It's so that uh, his brother gets a stark warning to like shape up. Right. And uh, this is the consequence of your action, although he's still not facing them when he's going out on his own terms. But no, know, but there is some recognition of his, if his I action. had just taken your advice and don't, don't do what I've done. Uh, and so again, I, I mean, let's be honest. Today, we we all know that Epstein didn't kill himself. I mean, we can assume. Well, <laughs> and I, I think it's very uh, similar situation uh, that that we come across here. An answer we may never have. So now they're kind of at a standstill. They're in a bit of a pickle. Their principal perpetrator is dead. Yep. What now? They have to go after the next best option, which would be Frank Knapp, 
Joseph Knapp Jr.'s brother, who was standing watch the night of the murder. Yes. So Knapp Jr. confesses. So check, he's taken care of. Crown Shield's dead. Check, he's taken care of. What's next, Frank? So he'll be put on trial, but they've got a hung jury. They can't decide either way whether or not this man is guilty. So what they're trying to push for is uh, including him as principal. Right. Um, And the jury can't reach a conclusion. And, uh, okay, well, hung jury, we'll retry the case. (laughs) But then... I I mean, it's not funny, but it's... it's, it's, He's laughing because he knows what's coming. This is just another... (laughs) Little side note that could make a very colorful addition to this movie that we are putting together. Right? This doesn't have, this isn't real. This is reality. This is literally why I love history. Before they go to retry him, the judge dies. (laughs) Justice Parker, the guy had hardly missed a day of work in his life. He was still trying cases on a regular basis. And I'm pretty sure he was in like his 70s. Yeah. He was a go getter up at dawn, kind of hardworking and. The timing of this is just... He was about to preside over the trial of the century. Sorry. Okay. Hung jury, dead judge. How do we move forward? We're going to have to call in the big guns. Right. So this is where Stephen White is going to reach out to some important people. Now, I get it, right? Like, I I know sometimes I'll, I'll look at this... This trial are here when we talk about other people, they're like, well, you know, now Stephen White, he's a member of the Massachusetts state legislature. Should he really be getting involved? And like, well, it's his family. It's his family. He knows people. Yeah, he's calling in favors. But you have uh, a a dead judge. You have a dead guilty party. You have a uh, hung jury. And he's like, we're not messing around anymore. This is like I. And you've got a huge conspiracy, a brutal murder, and the whole New England area is terrified. You cannot just let this case go. So he calls in Daniel Webster. Dun, dun, dun. Now, he's kind of an important guy. He has done several stints in the Massachusetts legislature. He is, at this time, a senator. Yes. For the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Yes. So he is he is representing us down in Washington, D.C. And he's known to be a brilliant orator. Yeah. And legal mind. He's still, even to this day, sort of regarded as one of the best legal minds uh, of his day. And even some of his case law uh, still stands. And, and it's very easily accessible, his uh, opinions and briefs and things along these lines. And for those of you who are from New Hampshire... Uh, or the northern part of Massachusetts, or in the area at all, you're probably going to recognize the name Daniel Webster Highway uh, up in New Hampshire. So if you've uh, been up there, Pheasant Lane Mall area, we all know what's going on, that good old DW Highway. So Webster's main goal here, he has to convince this jury that Knapp, Frank Knapp, had just as much a hand in the crime, in the murder, as... Richard Crowninshield did. Which round one was very difficult. Round two, it's a little easier, but also he's incredibly talented in what he's doing and he can put together a better picture, the piece of the puzzle. He makes them fit just perfectly well. And uh, some of the ways that that, that he does this is he brings in several key witnesses uh, who are all saying that they saw Frank Knapp out on Brown Street. By the way, if you're looking at the Gardner Pingree house, you're on Essex Street. If you 
walk behind it all the way. Uh, the road that effectively, uh, like the Roger Conant statue is on that goes down to, to the parking lot, that's Brown Street. So that's where they're claiming that nap was. Several eyewitnesses are saying they saw a man who looked like Frank Knapp. They saw a man who they thought might have resembled Frank Knapp. They saw a man who was wearing the same color coat as Frank Knapp. They saw a man who turned his head away, but they could have sworn it was Frank Knapp. So now several people are saying, yeah, yeah, I saw him there. So if he's there, what he's now making the correlational argument is the only reason for him to have been there is because he was involved in the murder. And it was his, uh, it was him being there as a lookout, as a guard that established the ability of Crown Shield to be able to sneak into the house unseen. He may not have swung the club, he may not have wielded the knife, but he was just as responsible in facilitating this crime as Richard Cronenshield, and thus he deserves that label of principal yes. perpetrator. And if Daniel Webster is able to do this, well, then they can actually go after John Knapp Jr. as well. Yeah. And the, the, the case is, is long and it's very well uh, thought out and, and planned and perceived. And it is impeccable legal definition argument. We're going to pull a little bit from Daniel Webster's opening statement to the jury. Gentlemen, it is a most extraordinary case. In some respects, it has hardly a precedent anywhere, certainly none in our New England history. This bloody drama exhibited no suddenly excited, ungovernable rage. The actors in it were not surprised by any lion-like temptations springing upon their virtue and overcoming it before resistance could begin. Nor did they do the deed to glute savage vengeance or satiate long-settled and deadly hate. It was a cool, calculated, money-making murder. It was all higher in salary, not revenge. It was the weighing of money against life, the counting of so many pieces of silver against so many ounces of blood. Now, we should note that Daniel Webster has never tried a criminal case like this before. He is always on the defense side and he even opens and, and lets them know he's never even tried a case affecting life before yeah. um, in, in a case where someone has died. So this is his first go at this, and uh, he's coming out guns blazing. And I, I guess one of the reasons that <clears throat> I guess one of the reasons that he liked uh, the defense is because the defendable position. He can make that case, make that argument. And he finds the way to do a very similar styled thing in the prosecution. And I, I find it somewhat funny that the case that arguably he is most known for is the one that was outside of his wheelhouse. An aged man without an enemy in the world in his own house and in his own bed is made the victim of a butchery, for mere pay, truly, here is a lesson for painters and poets. Whoever shall hereafter draw the portrait of murder, if he will show it as it has been exhibited, where such examples was last to have been looked for in the very bosom of our New England society, let him not give in the grim visage of Moloch, 
the brow knitted by revenge, the face black with settled hate, and the bloodshot eyes emitting livid fires of malice, let him draw, rather, a decorous, smooth-faced, bloodless demon, a picture in repose rather than an action, not so much an example of human nature in its depravity and in its paroxysms of crime, as an infernal being, a fiend, in the ordinary display and development of his character. Ooh, chilling. You can only imagine what it must have been like sitting in that courtroom, listening to this man as he, as he describes this situation. Well, we do know, because it wasn't just the murder that took over the headlines in all those newspapers, but this court case in particular, people were coming from all over New England to Salem to witness Daniel Webster's argument. Daniel Webster, also known as... Black Dan. (laughs) What a nickname. Right? Right? Get this. My dad's name is Dan. Dan Black. Dan Black. Black Dan. You just got to start calling him that. So cool. That's it. He doesn't know yet. (laughs) Like, hey, Black Dan, what's up? Hi, Dad. (laughs) But yes, Black Dan, for his fervor in the courtroom, he earns that nickname because of his uh, gaze, relentless gaze. We'll definitely be linking a photo of him in the show notes because uh, that, that That furrowed brow, those, those narrowed eyes. He is intense looking. Yeah. Yeah. Can you uh, imagine you're sitting there and he just sort of looks across the courtroom, eyes narrowing, just like... You're like, oh, oh no. I wish I wish we could hear his voice. Oh, right. I wonder if there's 1830. Nope. No, not a chance. Yeah. But yes, it was it was that commanding presence, that intense gaze. The New Hampshire Patriot and States Gazette will also call him, quote, the immortal Daniel. Ooh. I feel like, I don't know what that is, the immortal Daniel. Isn't that great? That's kind of cool. <laughs> My dad's going to be like, I want that on a t-shirt. <laughs> a Christmas present. There you go. There You're we done. Go. Sorted. With, with Webster's with, with face <laughs> on it. Yeah. We'll continue. Are the crowning shields and the naps innocent? What is innocence? How deep stained with blood, how reckless in crime, how deep in depravity may it be? and yet retain innocence. So he, he goes on, tries the whole case, and then there's a little, uh, got a bit of his closing arguments here. And uh, there's, I mean, every other sentence in, in this whole thing like just sort of speaks to you, but uh, I'm going to read uh, one quick paragraph here uh, about his closing arguments. And so maybe you can get a, uh, a test of, of how it goes. Your verdict it is true, may endanger the prisoner's life, but then it is to save others' lives. If the prisoner's guilt has been shown and proved beyond reasonable doubt, you will convict him. If such reasonable doubts of guilt still remain, you will acquit him. You are the judges of the whole case. You owe a duty to the public as well as the prisoner. At the bar, you cannot presume to be wiser than the law. Your duty is plain, straightforward one. Doubtless, we would all judge him in mercy. Towards him, an individual, the law indicates no hostility. But towards him, if proved to be a murderer, the law and the oaths you have taken, the public justice, demand that you do your duty. 
I've never done jury duty before, <laughs> but like, I really hope that it's like that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's ever like that. I don't. I, they don't talk like that anymore, do they? No, they, not even. This is. This is. With consciences satisfied with the discharge of duty, no consequences can harm you. There is no evil that we cannot face or fly from, but the consciousness of duty disregarded. Signed, Black Dan. <laughs> he did so good. He did. He, he did so good. And he did so good that they do find Knapp guilty uh, on principle. After just like five hours of deliberation, we've been at this for months now. And I think it came to a point where they did not think that justice would be served. And with everything, with, 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 with the lies, with the false letters, with the accusations, with the <coughs> suicide, with you know the, the overturning of state's evidence, with everything, with the death of a darn judge, Chief Justice Parker. And now, five hours. Frank Knapp is found guilty and is sentenced to death. He will be executed at the Salem Jail on September 28th, 1830. So we've got two down. Richard Crowninshield and Frank Knapp. Yes, are both dead. George Crowninshield is going to be released. Yes. Now, why is that, Jeffrey? Because uh, he had an alibi. Uh, he was busy that night, preoccupied with some presumably lovely young ladies whose uh, time he was paying for. I think you said this was your fa- one of your favorite little snippets that yeah, you came across yeah. during this. It's like, oh, he's found it. You know, no, he has an alibi. He has an alibi. He has an alibi. And uh, then uh, uh, looking at some of Daniel Webster's works, uh, it turns out that he has an alibi uh, from a woman uh, who confirmed that he was with another woman that evening. And uh, when you read it, you're like, oh, 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 I see. oh, oh. Way better than murder. Well, he, <laughs> can you imagine? Like, I just play it over in my head. Right? You're like, oh, yeah. Hey, bro, what are you up to? Yeah, I'm going to go bash this guy's skull in you. Oh, yeah, I'm going to go hook up with, uh, you know, with the, with this woman. And so that's how the two brothers spend their night. One uh, covered in blood, one uh, with a prostitute. I thought you were going to say covered <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we can leave that in for our young listeners. So all who is left is Joseph Knapp Jr., the guy who orchestrated the whole thing. Mm -hmm. He has to see the writing on the wall at this point. He'd... he'd He'd lost his chance. He, he'd had a uh, state's evidence. You know, he turned on, on everyone else. Now he's like, no, I'm going to give it up. Now his brother's dead. Now uh, the, the conspirators, one's dead, one's free. He's, he's, he knows what's coming. Joseph Knapp Jr.'s trial is going to begin on November 9th. And of course, Daniel Webster will be there for that one as well. And this one isn't uh, as sensationalized, uh, really, because in the first one, uh, Webster sort of does the job and sort of sets that new legal precedent. And and then he sort of you know uses the fact that he just won for what he was trying to argue already, which makes what he's trying to argue easier. Right. And then also you have that whole weird hoop to jump through. You've got a principal conspirator 
charged. Yes. Yeah. Now you can do the accessory. Yeah. Yeah. He pleads not guilty, of course, but he will be inevitably found guilty at the end of it and is sentenced to die on December 31st of that year. New Year's Eve. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, for those of you who uh, have taken a tour of Salem, walked around Salem, uh, familiar with Salem, the old location of Bitbar, the jail, uh, was where they were hanged, and they were both hanged from the same gallows. The, f- the first time I read that, I was a little confused. Hanged from the same gallows, and I was like, at the same time? Like, that doesn't mean, what, what's going on? Like the two brothers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, the first thing I, I read about it, it was just the way it was phrased. It all seemed like they'd hanged at the same time. Um, but no, they're three months apart. Yeah, I can't even imagine what he was thinking at that point. Just got to be kicking yourself. And all of you this. screwed up. Like a, a small legal misunderstanding. He thought he was going to get 200K, not 15. Misread the law. Hired some idiot to kill your granduncle-in-law. Whoops. And threw the whole town into a tizzy. Now, earlier, you had said what I wouldn't give to know what those folks in the courtroom were feeling or thinking watching Daniel Webster speak. Yeah. We do have some insight. People from all over New England, reporters were coming into I, the courtroom. Uh, I read somewhere uh, that uh, reporters are coming from New York City. Yeah. So, and that's like that's like New York City in, in like early 1800s. If any of you have watched like, you know, Gilded Age on what is that? Amazon or whatever. Imagine, you know, these reporters coming all the way up to Salem to see Black Dan. John Nichol, a British literary critic, wrote, The terrible power of this speech and its main interests lie in the winding chain of evidence, link by link, coil by coil, round the murderer and his accomplices. One seems to hear the bones of the victim crack under the grasp of a boa constrictor. That's good, too. I feel like we, we've lost some literary skill in the past. Oh, 100%. <laughs> People were recognizing how significant yeah. this, uh, this legal argument was. A prominent lawyer and statesman by the name of Samuel McCall said the speech was, quote, the greatest argument ever addressed to a jury. And come on, come on, Hollywood. Pick this one up. Netflix, you got it. What's going on? Gold star, Black Dan. Right? We're dropping the ball. Black Dan and Haunted Pepper or something. I don't know. <laughs> Black Dan and Black Gold. Black Dan. <laughs> oh, that's Salem's history for you. In a nutshell. Right? In a peppercorn. Oh, that was, that was horrible. <laughs> I love it. So that just about rounds out sort of the the whole trial narrative. Um, but there's loose ends isn't the right word. There's other things that we're going to move on to. Um, so first, let's let's bring it into the modern era. Yeah, let's talk about legacy. I think the best legacy, the coolest legacy, one of my most favorite is in the Peabody Essex Museum. It is, I think. Did I say that this was my favorite item in the museum? I think I did. I think, and I still stand by that. Um, I think I stared at it for like a solid three to five minutes. I don't know why. It's just like, I love true crime. I'm not sure if I, I'm sure there are other things like this in other places. Like this cannot be the only thing like this 
but it, 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 it's unique. So if you go into the Peabody Essex Museum, you can go to the Salem Stories exhibit. And inside that exhibit, in one of the little vignettes they've put together, it is filled with memorabilia about this case. The crowning jewel of which is the club that was used to hit Captain White over the head with. That two-foot club with the lead inside that was that, hand-carved hand for this murder. Sits in the Peabody Essex Museum. They still have it. And it is next to the confession. Uh, it is next to a wanted poster and next to a drawing uh, and a painting of some of the gentlemen involved as well, uh, which are all very cool, right? You're like, look at all so these cool. these literal pieces of history. But you can go and, I mean, you can't touch, but you can <laughs> imagine if they put it like in one of those things like you could lift up. Oh my God. You know, yeah. you, you know what I'm talking about? Ooh. So that, that is uh, one of the coolest things. Uh, but then that leads us into a little, a little tale that we have uh, very, I think, expertly avoided up until this point. So there's uh, two prominent historical figures that take note of this. And we're not 100% sure if it was at the time or reading about, but we do know it was widely published. Uh, one of them is local. One of them is not so local. Which one do you want to tackle first? Let's talk Nathaniel Hawthorne. Hawthorne? Okay. Yeah, Hawthorne was living in Salem at the time of mm -hmm. the murder, and he was actually working for the Salem Gazette. Mm -hmm. So it would have been part of his job to, to go, go and yeah. and watch this trial take place. He's living in his mother's home, and he's kind of a struggling writer at this point. Just living in his mom's basement, just being a mooch. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and he'll go on to become like one of the most you know, revered writers of all time. But yeah, pretty much. He is captivated by this case. Inspiration? I mean, I, I'd say so. I mean, just, just reading them, you're inspired. I can't imagine what it must have been like to, to, to listen. It's no surprise that these themes of inherited guilt, uh, familial infighting, crime, they will work their way into Hawthorne stories. And whether that is... Uh, by design or accidental, uh, I think they're both a result of, of his time spent involved reporting on this situation. On this historic moment. Yes. Of course, he hates his job. He's working at the customs house, you know, part-time. He's like, screw this. And then he gets to see this, and you're like, oh, my God, death, murder, deceit, betrayal, lies, cheating, plans on the common, guilt, confession, murder, full moons, 13 stabs. It's the makings of a perfect story. Many which, perfect stories. Which still has yet to be told. Come on. Netflix. <laughs> but perhaps an even more direct inspiration mm -hmm. is seen in Edgar Allan Poe's work. A telltale heart. So we have direct access to Webster's closing arguments. And we can see how he paints this picture and how he talks about Crown and Shield. And he uses this uh, concept of moonlight a couple of times, this, this light filtering in. And uh, he uses the, the, this description, and it's beautifully written, how, you know, Crown and Shield under the cover of darkness, like with the moonlight. And then if you think Poe, and you're like, wait a minute, there's this story of this young man sneaking into this old man's house to kill him in the middle of the night. Of course, it's because he has this glowing blue vulture eye and he did like the eye and he's just like, I can't, I can't, I can't. And and then he sneaks in and, and the uh, young man in Poe's story has this lantern 
And there's several times where Poe describes him as cracking it to give himself this bit of light to guide his way. And there's several times almost verbatim that Poe copies Webster's uh, transcript. And then in addition to that, there is this need to confess, which we see in both of their works. How, you know, Knapp. I was going to say directly related to Knapp's confession yeah. and his willingness to just divulge all this information. Mm-hmm. So we can see all of this. So if you're sitting here and you're like, oh, this murder, and like, oh my gosh, a telltale heart, a scarlet letter, it all rings true. I mean, what better place to derive the worst characteristics of humanity than from one of the pages of history? Yeah. But with that, I will offer one other small critique. If any of you out there have been on a tour in Salem, have heard a rumor that perhaps the murder house, the Gardner Pingree house where Captain Joseph White had his skull bashed in was the inspiration behind the board game clue. You're wrong. Sorry. (laughs) And which I will be the first to admit that was one of my first most vivid memories I have of coming to Salem and hearing that story Mm -hmm. being put out in front of the Gardner Pingree house. Almost all the tours stop there and they tell the story of this murder. But then oftentimes it does divulge into it's the a discussion house. of the, that's what I used to call it. Yeah. And I'm kicking myself. Yeah. I'm kicking myself for it. I remember distinctly that Mrs. White was inspired by Captain White, right. uh, Colonel Mustard. That was actually, if you look at the Gardner Pingree house today, there is a mustard colored house, house. that oh sits right next to the Gardner Pingree house, which is called the Cronin Shield Bentley house. Yes. And I had been told that that's where the murderers lived. Same. And that is where they get the idea from Colonel Mustard. They just kind of, you know, change the wording a little bit. That's, and then, that's amazing. And then I've even heard it go even further. Mrs. Peacock is just a variation of Peabody and like the Peabody family <sighs> and how they're just a rich family. None of that. So I had to, I really dug in to try to find, you know, was, was Miss White around was that character around before any of Clue was formed? And it was. It was part of the original Clue, Cluedo cast but of, um, course, of characters. Clue's invented in England. Right, right. Cluedo. Yeah. Uh, and real quick, it's, it's conceived uh, by a gentleman during World War II. He's taking shelter from the bombings uh, in the London Blitz, and, and he makes a board game that is reflective of, of a game a parlor murder mystery game used to play as a kid. Uh, once the war's over, he patents that with a company called Wadsworth. And then shortly thereafter, a company called the Parker brothers picks it up and transforms it into clue. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure that this white character, Mrs. White, Colonel mustard, these did not exist. These were not created from these characters. Yeah. So they were in fact, part of the original game. Uh, Nurse white, as she was originally called, and Colonel Yellow, which would eventually be transformed into Colonel Mustard. But but the Parker brothers are from Salem. The Parker brothers are from Salem, and that judge that died was their great something grand uncle. Yeah, he uh, had grand uncle something like that. Yeah. So, so there's a very good chance that this is something that they 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 must have known about it. So when they likely saw the game 
uh, in England, they were like, oh my gosh, like, you can imagine they're sitting there over a glass of wine. They're like, oh, did you hear about this new game called Cluedo? And you're like, oh my, that just reminds me of the Gardner Pingree house murder that our great uncle tried the case for, you know? And you're like, yep. let's get the rights to that. And that's what happens. But inspired by? Absolutely not. Poe? Yes. Hawthorne? Yes. So again, it is still well known today. Was there anything that stuck out in the research? Like, is there anything fun tidbit that mm-hmm. you came across that, you know, didn't make it into the general conversation of the episode? Because I found something that I'm going to share. I um, mean, uh, other than the fact that you can go see the murder weapon, George Crown Shield was with uh, some prostitutes and the payment for the murder was being held in a bank vault that uh, we've hung out in. No, I think I'm good. <laughs> I think that vault might be one of my favorite little little snippets there. So I did stumble upon one little gem Ooh, while researching. A diamond in the rough. Maybe you did too. Okay, okay. Did you know that there are murder ballads about this murder? Murder? Wait, what? Like, like, like songs? Like songs made about- oh. Oh, oh, yeah. no, yes. And it's, 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 it's done. It's Shit, sung. Shoot. It's, it's, it's sung to, to, to the tune of Old Land Zine. Yes. Yes. Oh my God. I had, oh. Do you want to sing it with me? No. <laughs> I want you to sing it. And I, I, I get to be entertained and I'm going to, I'm going to get video. No, you're not. <laughs> Put that down. Put it down. You are not. <laughs> Absolutely not. I like practice this. Well, that's that's why it should be on record. Your whole, your facial expressions. We should get yeah. a record of this. 100% no. <sighs> I would like. They this, all, this, this would make for great Patreon content. They also wrote a ballad about uh, Richard Crowninshield's suicide. I don't think I knew that. It was written on a broadside, which is basically like a historic poster and distributed throughout the town. Isn't that crazy? I want one. Where do I get one? Internet. Yeah, probably for like. Oh, what a horrid tale to sound in this our land to tell that Joseph White of Salem town by ruffian hands he fell. Perhaps for money or for gain, this wicked deed was done. But if for either great the pain, this murder must be in. Oh, the infernal of the damned to murder in the night with cruel arm and blood-stained hand which pierced the side of white. Thou hardened-hearted monster devil to thrust the dirk of death, you will be placed upon the level for time will stop your breath. Well then, it's pretty ra- good, right? Ra- round of applause oh, to, to, to Miss Sarah Black over here. Thank you very much for that uh, lovely rendition. Oh, I forgot. There's another stanza. <laughs> yeah, I'm just gonna leave that one out. So, so I think the goal, and I, I'm just gonna throw this out there for for those of you listening. Um, any any other tour guide in, in Salem? I, I think we should all try and learn the tune. And uh, if at any point we come together to celebrate, we can sing the ballad of Captain Joseph White. I kind of love that idea. <laughs> I love that. We should do that. Right? 
A challenge issued, gauntlet thrown. Now, that was only three stanzas from uh, the original, I believe it was 10 stanzas long. Okay, maybe not 10. Yeah, no. Um, I don't even know if we can track down the full amount. This came from American Murder Ballads and Their Stories by Olive Woolley Burt, which came out in 1958. And uh, I think she took some liberties on what she wanted to include. I would love to get my hands on one of those books, but they are a little pricey. Uh, Yeah, I just looked on Amazon, the hardcover, $300. Yeah. No. But I mean like murder ballads. I know. She also includes the one about Crown and Shield's death. Oh, man. We're going to have a rousing good New Year. What are you doing for New Year, Sarah? Let's let's sing murder ballads. I'm in. <laughs> the song is over. Huh? Story's over. Who done it? We know. It was uh, Richard Crown Shield. Not with the candlestick. <laughs> it was Richard Crown Shield with a club in the bedroom. Poor old Captain White. Maybe, maybe be nicer just to the people around you and they won't come and try and kill you. And also don't be a slave trader. Yeah. Just generic advice for life. <laughs> I hope we were able to expand a little bit on this story for all of you listeners. I know I have heard it pretty much since I started coming to Salem. So it was a pleasure really digging in. It was. I know that uh, previous to doing this, I'd had a few uh, a few things wrong. Uh, and it's just because it's just it gets so complicated. It is so, so complicated. Yeah. But It's the names, really. The... The Richards and the Whites and the Josephs and the Marys. And all the snags, the yeah. red herrings. Right? Who who done it? The 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 letter and the grants and the Joseph Jenkins Frank Francis Jr. Senior. Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> so we hope you enjoyed our first little dip into Salem true crime. It was the first, but it will hardly be the last. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.